Are you ready to become awesomer? Hello, everyone. This is Umar Hamid, your host, and welcome to the No Limit Selling Podcast, where industry leaders share their tips, strategies, and advice on how to make you better, stronger, faster. Get ready for another episode. Today, I have the pleasure of having Rhonda Overby joining me today, and Rhonda is the Chairman, President, and CEO of Camera Ready, Inc. Rhonda, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. I'm really excited to be talking to you today because you are also an actress. Yeah. And the thing that intrigues one of my favorite shows is Inside the Actors Studio, And the reason I love that show is this, is my fascination is human beings and why we do what we do. And actors see humanity from a different lens because they have to embody another personality. And sometimes when they're talking about their acting, they articulate the human experience in a different way than a psychiatrist would than a mere mortal would and sometimes that gives me deep insights into things I've been like wondering about so so excited to have you here thank you acting especially at the highest levels to be done effectively requires extreme empathy yes this is my illusion so correct me because you live it that it requires that authenticity and transparency and vulnerability like if you can step into that my illusion is that's when you step out of the television and you touch somebody's heart it's interesting that you characterize it that way because some would say to embody another Mm -hmm. effectively requires talent that isn't transparent because the person conveying those images, embodying this other person for the duration of the production can be nothing like that whom he or she is portraying. So transparency, maybe, maybe not. I think that's up to... You live it, so this would be an interesting... So what's your read on it? Which way would you you go when you embody a character? Are you uh, tapping into who you really are and and going through that lens of that personality? Or what does that work like? How does that work? People have different modes. Some use method acting, and it really does depend upon the actor. It's an individualized response, whether it calls for um, tapping into something that's true to Mm -hmm. you emotionally, although the circumstances may be different. It really does depend, and different actors answer in different ways. And how do you answer? It is not something that I pursued very seriously for very long. I discovered acting, aside from school plays growing up, uh, doing undergraduate studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where you had to graduate from the general college before you could even declare a major. And there was one uh, period where I could study women in ancient Greek literature Mm -hmm. or drama, so I chose the latter. And in so doing, got A's throughout. 
And I thought, this doesn't even seem like it's fair. It was fun the whole time mm-hmm. and so easy to do. So I thought, wow, this is going on my transcript. You know, getting the same weight as calculus in a foreign language, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be fun to do this for a living? And at the time, there were no roles for ethnic women. Right. Uh, you had people who were doing action roles, male ethnic figures who might have a love interest on screen, who might have one scene or two. So it was not plausible. And it was not until I ended my television news career to become an entrepreneur, Homicide Life on the Street was filming, and I sent a headshot and got cast after I gave my notice, but working until they found my replacement, right. etc. I was cast to play a newscaster, having no idea that that would turn into a recurring role for many seasons while I was building my company. Um, Brilliant. And it worked out very, very well. Um, and it is difficult to do from the East Coast unless you are already a marquee name, wherein you can do it from wherever you can receive uh, communication. <laughs> so looking from your lens, we're going to actually turn to business and sales in a minute, but uh, looking from your lens as uh, an actor, who are some of the actors out there that you go, you know, they are the masters of their craft? Nicole Kidman, Denzel Washington. There's so many. I hate to name. I, right. Jude Law. I mean, I, Anthony Hopkins, Ben Kingsley. I could just... Go on and on. And yeah, on. yeah, uh, and I'm terrible with names. And there's someone else coming to mind right now as well. Viola Davis. I mean, there there are just so many. And there's a local actor here, Ed Norton, I think. Oh, he's phenomenal. In fact, I thought he should have earned the Academy Award for Primal Fear. Yeah. So now, tell me about Camera Ready. What do you guys do? Strategic communications. What does that mean in English? It can mean anything based on what the client needs. It is, are you saying what you think you're saying Mm -hmm. to whom you think you're saying it? Because communication is not just talking or emitting sound. It is how it's received. Absolutely. And we live in a global world. Not everybody interprets the same way, the same thing. So it's not just a matter of speaking in the language, um, whether it's English, Spanish, whatever the language is, but so that they can hear you, so that they can feel the message the way that you intend. So it is making sure that the mission and the vision align with every touch point with your audience, whether it's internal or external. So give me a real-life example, if you can, of a particular client. Like, this was their message, and this is how we transformed it. Or they were going after the wrong target, and we retargeted and refined the message. Can you give a real-world example? Absolutely. And I'll try and think of one wherein it is not disclosed who the audience, uh, who the client is, because we 
really believe in confidentiality. But the tagline is, you deserve a break today. I'm only kidding. That's not the client. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Cha-ching. Um, I will give you an example of efficacy. Mm-hmm. There was a client who had been running promotions internally mm-hmm. and with an outside firm. So internal for the staff? Internal oh. as well as external. Okay. So they had an internal marketing department okay. and an ad agency under contract. And this was a promotion that they would run every time they needed to draw in a certain number of clients at a certain price point. And Camera Ready was the new agency. And we launched the campaign differently based on where we saw their target audience. We saw their target audience as affluent, with disposable income, local, within a certain mile radius of the business outlets. We launched a campaign that had results so quickly that by the very next marketing meeting, the chief financial officer had a fit because there had been so much response that it was costing the business. So they exceeded goals to such a tremendous degree that we had to cut the campaign short. It was supposed to run for half a year. It ran less than one quarter because it was so successful. And it was just a matter of not just doing what the prior advertising agency had done, but understanding who they needed to reach and who could respond. So what interests me is this. So who were they targeting before you came along and retargeted them? The general public. People that run companies plus or minus, let's take this company, I suspect they had a lot of smart people in the company. Oh, absolutely. So the question is, you know, business 101 is, you know, know who your target is, and it can't be everybody, but somehow they were still targeting everybody. How do you think that happens? In this particular case, not only was it the general market, they were targeting their clients as well, internally, through mailers and people who already had an affinity. Well, that market was tapped. And the general market was too broad for where they are. So we just did a specialized campaign based on the specific product and based on where they are, uh, which reached a whole new market for them, but the market that had the income at the ready to take advantage of the offer. How difficult was it to sell them on that concept? Was it like, oh, that makes sense, let's go? Or did you have to like convince them to, no, no, we know what we're doing, this is what we need to do? It, we didn't have to convince them. We were given a goal and the promotion and told to launch a campaign. And we did. We just reported what we were doing. They trusted because we had been their public relations agency and had already uh, made an impact there. Nice. So there was... Leverage that trust to say, exactly, okay, we've got you. Exactly. In fact, we started doing the advertising by default because because we, are, we were the PR agency already. Right. We were just asked to take a look at uh, an ad campaign to make sure it was on target with the message because we'd been working so closely 
And when I looked at the ads, there were eras, but they also were not on mission. Mm -hmm. And so they were scheduled to go into production the next day. And I called the CEO to say, did you take a look at these scripts? Because from what I'm interpreting, it is not aligned with the mission and the vision. So we ended up um, having to take over that campaign and, and the rest resulted. Tell me about another client where they had the message uh, honed, but their audience was receiving something else. Where you got a chance to kind of go in and do you realize that you think you're saying this, but they're hearing this and that's why there's a disconnect? Does anything come to mind? Often. Um, gosh. And I wish I could think of something that's easy to convey because sometimes that's difficult mm -hmm. to convey unless you're talking about something that's as obvious as a mission. People will talk at meetings and will develop a mission statement, for one thing. Most have so many words. Yes. And are so global in their reach that they don't speak to how each role within the company is important. So often, employees are not aware that there is a mission statement or a vision statement. And if they are, they're not aware of why the function that they play is how integral it impacts, yeah. to it. And so one of the things we do is making it relevant to everybody because everybody on the team is relevant to achieve the overall goals. And that is often what's the not done. That's often the missing link that can be impactful regardless of what the tagline is. So one of the things that uh, I do is, you know, most companies are gonna be small companies. According to the feds, Absolutely. any company less than 500 people is considered a small company. But I'm talking more people with like 60 people, 100 people tops. Oftentimes what they do is at some stage of their company, could be when they start or sometime into it, they go, you know, we really need a mission statement and a vision statement. And they either use consensus or they use a consultant and they come up with a mission statement that is bullshit because it's inauthentic. And I think every single human being on planet Earth has a purpose in life. And if you get the founder CEO and you uncover their personal purpose in life and you map that over to being the mission of the company, then they end up being the authentic leader. And once you've got the mission, which is more like a direction, then you can pick three years from now we want to be this and make that the vision and it kind of aligns more with that and also the values of the founder and the criteria they use what if we mapped it over to the company and then it would be something that's real and meaningful that sets them apart but anyway that's kind of i believe more in an organic approach Absolutely. to building things and not one like you know the mission of our company is to make our employees the environment the whales and it's like I've read that before right. everywhere. Uh, there's a really brilliant guy uh, who said this statement once. He says, talking about marketing, 
if your marketing does not have the power to offend, it does not have the power to convince. And I was like, that is scary, but true. It's like you can't sell, be the one thing to everyone. This is your target, sell to them. Sell to them why they'd possibly want to take action, not be so vanilla that they're like, <sighs> what's your competitive advantage? Yeah. Are you communicating it? One of the campaigns he did was uh, finding Canada's most lovable used car dealer. And they had these teddy bears as part of their campaign. <laughs> and it was just like so silly because that's probably the least trusted profession out there. Oh, absolutely. I'm not sure they deserve that rap, but that's still, it's the perception is reality kind of thing. Sure, the used car salesman. So as you look out into the future, we are in changing times and getting a crystal ball for anything more than two years in the future is a waste of time. So how do you navigate your company? I know there's some like certain basic truths of what you guys are doing, but for your clients, as the climate changes, what are you envisioning? Like, how do you stay on the relevant to your clients and relevant to what's happening in the world that we live in? Reading. Constant growth. One of my theories is nothing that's living is stagnant. Yep. Stasis is not possible. So you're either progressing or digressing, progressing or regressing. You cannot remain static. It, it's impossible. So when Camera Ready first started, we were not devising social media strategies for right. clients. It did not exist. But evolving with the breakneck change in the industry has been interesting, exciting, and it's what keeps us relevant. We are on the verge of even more changes as the algorithms change in social media, as you're able to fine-tune target audiences more and more it creates opportunities if you're abreast yeah uh, learning is my number one most important value because nothing gives me more joy than because uh, when I learn things either they go in the yes column or they go in the no column like this is not good or they go on the fence and the stuff that's on the fence the only way it comes off is when I read something else or learn something else and go ah oh, that is important. Put it in the yes column or let's get rid of it. So learning's really important. For you as you're divining this uh, social media, uh, I was just at a meeting yesterday and they were talking about you could geotag a hospital. So your ads only show geographically inside oh, the sure. walls of that hospital. Sure. And it's magical times. I mean, like you couldn't... It creates incredible opportunities. If Aladdin said, you know, I want to do that, Jeannie would have been, oh, my God, that's too tough. We can't do that. And now it's possible. It's amazing. Oh, it is. And, and I love your learning theory. One of my philosophies is if I can't be better tomorrow than I am today, why get up? And that's tied to learning, to growth. Yeah. I think Bob Dylan, uh, not that I'm a big fan, but he's got a song, you know, he not busy being born is busy dying. So that sense that your comfort zone or whatever we're talking about either is expanding or it's contracting there is no status quo you're so right so if you were advising a startup sure let's say this is a selfish request here because i want to know this for me uh an app company starting from scratch sure 
What does that look like? I would say, first of all, what does your interface look like? Mm-hmm. Um, how is the app designed? Is it very user-friendly? There are so many apps on so many platforms today. Why your app? Yes. That would be the first question. Mm-hmm. And you can answer it if you'd like. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I think, just making something that is natural, self-evident, the flow of it really helps a lot. Uh, making it super easy for somebody to pick up and figure out what it is. And that's an ongoing process. So m- I think my question is different than uh, you interpret it. It is why the app. So what you motivate. Why does it exist? It, uh, right. You said if I, if you were talking to me, first of all, um, as a potential client. Yes. I would want to believe in what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Because I think that if I buy into what you're doing, then I can be more strategic in helping you accomplish it versus just saying, okay, well, how, how much can we get paid to do this? Um, and just stopping there for a second, the sense I get is that if the app isn't what it needs to be, that you would be the first one to say, this is not going to work, and here's why. And, and that's the technical it. point of it. Yeah. But I'm going even beyond the technical development well, I'm talking, and interface. I'm talking more in terms of uh, this is not a good idea, that you'd be bold enough to tell a client, I think this is a bad idea and we shouldn't waste money unless we recraft it. Whereas a lot of vendors would go, what do I know? Well, let's see what we can do. And it's more about the payday than the let's get it right. You know, that ties back to the very first business question as you characterized it. Um, when you said strategic communication. Yes. Maybe it's because I grew up in live television news where you couldn't go to black and you had to get the story under extreme deadline, very publicly. No opportunity to issue the long memo and massage mm-hmm. the message so that it was watered down and could be needed to communicate directly to be effective to achieve the goal in a New York second. And so one of camera ready strategic advantages is that just what you said, ooh, why would I want this app? I, I would say that like there are 10 other apps that do why right. So I would I would I would say that. And then if I thought the idea had merit, I'd get into the technical interface um, and then the pricing and on what platforms and then how are you going to push that out to the target audience so that they want it and so that they engage with it so often that they recommend it and download it and use it and refer it so that you keep going and going and going. Because I do believe that, you know, whatever you're doing, I'm a firm believer in execute quickly and iterate to make it better. With an app, you can't do that as much because once it goes out there, it needs to be at a certain level of quality and all that stuff. But still, that's it's going to get better over time. And uh, people that want to make something totally perfect, whatever it ends up being, I think they kind of hold back too long. It's better to just uh, make it Good enough. So if I'm writing a marketing piece, I can wait to write it perfectly 
which might be a really long time, or I can just vomit on paper and then edit, then share it with uh, people and say, what do you think? And then after the third iteration, it's pretty darn good. Kind of your thoughts on that process versus going for perfection out of the gate? I think there is huge value in the beta testing versions of technology. Before going out, I still believe in the old adage, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Agreed. So I'm against vomiting on the page. But getting it out there versus just in your head. Now, sometimes people think of an idea and never take that step to Mm -hmm. get it onto the page. So I think there's merit in doing that in the privacy of your office or your home or your space but before it's rolled out publicly, yeah, I think it should absolutely. have gone through enough testing to offer some merit. And it can be tweaked as people interface and, and comment. Absolutely. And, and I agree. When it goes out into the public realm, it needs to be of a certain quality. But getting it there, I believe in the, okay, let's create a beta, send it out to friends and family, tweak it, make it better, send it out to some reviewers, and then that process speeds up the entire uh, production, whether it's a written word or an app or a car or whatever. And in our world, that's why we use focus groups. Yes. They can add incredible value just seeing them engage while you're watching on the other side of the wall, should you choose to. There's huge value in that, and I'm a firm believer in so doing. Before we part company today, by any chance, did you watch that TV show... Uh, called The Pitch? One episode, because it was serial. Yes, this one was, uh, they have a real-world account, like Walmart or whoever, and they have two agencies pitch pitch their ideas, and one of them's going to win. And I've got a 100% track record, don't be jealous, of picking the loser. <laughs> oh, I my. Like, I like the other campaign better. It's like, for sure, this one's going to win because I think it's amazing. But for the entire first season, I got every single one wrong. Wow. And I wear it proudly. <laughs> That's so interesting. That show was intense. Yeah, I really liked that creative process of coming up with an idea, refining it uh, before they present it a week later. Rhonda, one of the things that really intrigues me is this ability that human beings have to rationalize. And if you break up the word, it's rationalize. So we have this illusion of who we are, which is not who we actually are. And so how do you see that playing out in in the business world where you've got companies and they have this image that they want to portray, but you look at the company and go, well, wait a minute, there's a richer more authentic story here why aren't you why don't people see that because sometimes their internal reality is not what's portrayed out there in the world and there's like a disconnect have you come across that absolutely and there are so many examples today during this time of transparency where gosh uber is going through it right now with how it started and the culture that facilitated uber pun intended growth globally and what was happening as a result in terms of gaining that growth there's a book bad blood dealing with theranos oh interesting a movie is being made and that case is being litigated 
wherein you had someone who started a company believing that healthcare could be transformed by a patient's ability to prick their finger, test blood, without having to go to the lab and have draws over and over and over again. And it becomes crucial when one is terminal and has to check levels. But there was a culture in the company that has resulted in litigation that has yet to be resolved that was not consistent with that mission so you can have incredible intent and want to will it into existence, mm-hmm. but not everything aligns accordingly, whether it's the technology, whether it's the people, whether it's the ability to rep- replicate it, because you started talking about human yes, and what we portray and how that's received. Well, we play, humans are in roles. And when I say playing roles, I don't mean as actors. I mean whether it is Umar the businessman, Umar the husband, Umar the friend. Yes. Umar, in each role, you may be authentic, but different from you, that same person in the other role. So I'll give you another version of that, because I don't totally, I, I get what you're saying. Uh, in a more fundamental level, I think there is, we each have three faces. Uh, face one is what we show the outside world. And sometimes that's, look at me, I'm pretty, whether it's husband or business guy or friend. And sometimes what we show the outside world is, I'm broken, I'm a victim, I'll never be loved. For example, we've all got friends like that, that that's what they show the outside world. But then there is something worse than the illusion we show the outside world. It's the delusion of who we think we are. Because oftentimes, who we think we are isn't the authentic us. And I think the human journey is really uncovering who we actually are. And when we discover who we are, what that does is that delusion disappears. And we can actually go, this is who I am. And when we get brave enough, this is what we show the outside world. And when you come across people like that, and you hear this once in a while, we say, you know, this person, when you see him in public, and when you're his best friend, it's the same person. There is no heirs. That's a rare commodity. And one of the reasons they're so attractive to other human beings is when you're in their presence, you feel safe at a fundamental level because there's like a known North Star quality. And I think that's part of the human journey is really figuring out those three faces and getting them to coalesce into the authentic you. Exactly. The word that came to mind as you described that is authenticity. But who was it who said the highest form of knowledge is self-knowledge? Yes. So I don't think the goal is to deal with the three faces, but for the human to recognize that true face and to be brave enough to wear that face, which when you discover that doesn't require a wearing, it just is. It's being. It's human beings. You get to be that person and it's effortless to do. But the question is, how do you uncover your authentic self? And I think that's where society comes in, our upbringing comes in. Uh, Because if I went to 10 different people and said, finish this sentence for me, the sentence would be, a good person is, 
and someone will answer it. Maybe three words will come up. A good person is dependable. A good person is loving. A good person is whatever. Truthful. But you go to another person and ask them the same question. What we're revealing there are what are their beliefs around what a good person is. And if you get 10 people, you'll probably get 50 or 60 different answers on what a good person is. So to me, that's a different question than your original because that's somebody's opinion of what a good person is. So your truth self, who's is, and good requires judgment. So the authentic self, and, and you talked about up, upbringing and roles, sometimes people are so busy playing the role well yes. that they have no idea who they really are because they're getting it done every day. Getting it done, and the reason they play the role is because uh, fundamental building blocks of human beings are the beliefs that we hold. Only problem is that they sit in the unconscious, and they project the world that we want to live in and how we need to behave, and that's why it's so difficult to kind of go underneath that to figure out who we really are because our beliefs color the way we see that. And some t- a good example would be, uh, are you married? Are you asking me that yes. question? Move on. Okay. So let's say there was someone else sitting there about pick me when I was married. Uh, Sometimes I had this illusion of who I was, and my wife would say, no, you're not that funny, really. But I really had the belief that I was. So sometimes people that know us the best sometimes can see more clearly into who we are than we can see ourselves. Oh, absolutely. But sometimes playing the role is not I'm just deciding to play the role. We start out going to school you know there is a structure in which you want to succeed. You're told you need to be successful in order to be happy and so on and so forth. And so you go to school on time, hopefully. You do the lesson. You want the grade. You want the A. And it just ends up being this path of doing what you're supposed to do in order to succeed. Often it takes stillness and time alone where there is no structure that dictates success and what you're supposed to do to tap into who you were before you ever heard of school. And many don't have the luxury of that time, or if they do, are not comfortable enough alone to use it in a valuable enough way to Mm -hmm. get to that essence. So I'll give you an example. I had this uh, uh, great salesperson come in hitting over quota five years straight. The one problem, I can't ask for referrals. I try and do it and I feel really uncomfortable doing it or I go to do it and I do it badly. If you could help me with that, that would really help me increase my sales by 30% minimum. Love to do that. So it's like, okay, tell me about a particular time you went to ask for a referral and did it badly or you felt so uncomfortable you didn't do it. A salesperson says, okay, a month ago, I was with this client. I said, in your mind's eye, go back to that event, see the client before you. So go back to that very moment, see what you saw, hear what you heard, you asking, your inner thoughts. When you do those two things, you get to re-experience what you were feeling in your body. And he goes, that's weird, I'm feeling it now. It's a really uncomfortable feeling in my stomach right over here. So there's a tool from neuroscience. You can link that feeling to the unconscious mind that records everything. And using that tool, have you ever felt this feeling before? Conscious mind would have said, "Uh, not sure. This tool goes, oh my God, 
I was in the kitchen with my dad and one of my dad's buddies from work, and the two adults were talking, and my dad said, real men don't ask for help. And this little boy back then picked up that thought, and it became a belief, don't ask for help. So asking for the sale is not asking for help. I'm giving you something valuable. Asking for a referral is violating that belief. And so once we figured out what the belief was and changed it, that allowed him to comfortably ask. I get a call back uh, a couple of weeks later saying, thanks for doing that. You know, my customers want to give back to me. It's going to be a great year this year, but something weird is happening. What's happening that's weird? He said, cold calling, I, I did it. It was okay. It was okay for me. But now I really, really enjoy it because part of cold calling is asking for a favor. Can, can I have a few seconds? And once we cured the belief, then it freed that up as well. And I think sometimes we're the prisoners of our beliefs that we don't even realize we can't do it. And that's kind of my purpose in life is kind of bring that kind of elegant inquiry and transformation to the world and teach people how to do it so that they can step out of all those contracts and step back into who they really are. And it changes the world completely. Absolutely. There is so much depth to what you just said. Those core beliefs that stem from usually innocuous moments that manifest in behaviors that are totally disassociated and can be extremely limiting. And sometimes it's so much easier seeing it other people in other people and so darn difficult discovering it in ourselves. And I think that's part of the challenge is, you know, getting to those things. And uh, before we get uh, start talking about your company, the last thought that I want to share with you is that the one thing you need to pay attention to more than anything else in the world is your body. Because mm. your mind will lie to you. We can rationalize anything. But if you pay attention to your body, and they've got books written about your body tells you there's danger here. And your intellect looks around, no, it's a nice neighborhood, what are you talking about? But your body has sensed there's something not right. And so with that in mind, when we go in to meet someone, if we realize that our body is like litmus paper, paper in chemistry class, that if I pick up a feeling of wonder, and I'm thinking, do I really feel that? And sometimes I go, no, if I don't feel that, then the other person is feeling it and I'm picking it up. Or if there's an uncomfortableness I pick up and it's like, do I feel uncomfortable about this topic? It's like, no. And that means that the person I am talking with is feeling it. And sometimes if I feel it here and I'm holding it, my hand on my solar plexus, I'll go to the person and put my hand on my solar plexus and go, so how do you feel about that? And because I've done that, they'll go, well, I kind of feel uncomfortable. Wow. Because I've unconsciously told them, I know this is you. And isn't that just amazing? It is. You're describing energy, which they yes. say once it's created can never be destroyed. Right. How is it that you enter a room and can feel the tension, but everyone's silent upon entry? And smiling, maybe. Absolutely. And so I think we don't do that enough. And I think if there was one message I'd like to get out into the world is just really get a good sense of what your body feels like and when you walk into a room or you walk into a situation you'll pick up so much more information like there's this one pie chart that we've all probably seen communications 
7% of communications are the words that are being used. 38% is the tonality and how it's said. 55% is body language. And it's like, oh, that's nice. And I guess what I'm describing is pay attention to your body and you pick that 55% up effortlessly if you allow it to happen. Oh, you're right. I have a post up on LinkedIn right now, I think, that reads something like to go faster, farther, better, stop, Mm -hmm. feel your lungs breathing, listen to your heart beating. Are they in sync? Yeah. We often are breathing shallow, right? Not recognizing that it's shallow, not actually feeling a pulse at all. Um, And what you're describing, at least from my point of view, is stepping back into your body and being present in the moment. Yeah. And that's just a mechanism to get there. And uh, most people do not do that. And I don't do it often enough. Because when I step into my body, that's where I bring my best self to the equation. I'm sure you're right. (laughs) Presence. Really being where you are. And in this day and age where everybody's on a device... You see people trying to be in multiple places at once, often thinking that multitasking results in better outcomes. And there are many studies that show the reverse of that is true. And what's tragic is people that used to be in love, that are in a relationship, can be in a restaurant both paying attention to their phone and not each other. That's sad. Extremely. And I've been guilty of it in the past. There's actually a bibliopsychology. Are you f- familiar with it? No, tell me. Uh, well, I thought it was where you were going when you were talking about energy and, and being in your body. But it is a tool that therapists use. The New York Times magazine, I want to say, Sunday, early August, featured a book. I don't remember the name of the book, but it's where I became familiar with this term, where the concept is the therapist will listen to a patient and get a sense that this dynamic is played out in a work of literature and will refer accordingly. Right. And it's a breakthrough for the person who recognizes him or herself in In this character. Yeah. Um, Have you come across kinesiology in your travels? A little. So one of the things that I've seen in the past is where you get someone to hold up their arm on their side. So it's like uh, parallel to the ground. Mm-hmm. And then someone will come with two fingers on the end of their arm and ask the person to say something truthful and they can't move their arm. And then they ask them to uh, say a lie and their arm becomes weak. No matter how much they try, it'll just fold immediately. Have you come across that? Yes. This part I'm about to tell you, I have not come across. I saw this just the other day. So that one you can kind of understand, like something's going on. So this gentleman had this guy come up, and he did that and demonstrated strength and weakness when you lie versus truth. And then he asked the victim, I mean the volunteer, to close his eyes. And then he told the audience that, I want you to think positive thoughts about this person when I do a thumbs up. And I want you to think about negative thoughts when I do a thumb down. 
And then this person's got his eyes closed, his arm is up solid as a rock, and the guy does a thumb up so the guy can't see because the guy's behind him, plus he's got his eyes closed. And people just start thinking positive thoughts and his arm is rock solid. And then he goes like this and people start thinking negative thoughts and he does not know they're doing it. And when he goes to touch the arm, it just goes down effortlessly like he's totally weak and how does that happen because i saw it happen live wow and so we talk about the people we surround ourselves with and how the environment impacts us and that was just a concrete example of thoughts have power and you don't even have to be a willing recipient of it and you still get the impact of it oh there's some who say if people really understood how much power thoughts have yeah they'd never think a negative one absolutely and uh, the last thought i'll leave you with is people are so enamored with affirmations sure i love them for a totally different reason what's that so let's say someone went i am i am sexy to women and they say it 10 times let's say i was saying it 10 times i'm not interested in what i'm saying what I'm deeply fascinated is when that negative voice comes up and says, who the hell are you kidding? That is a thread that leads to a belief in the unconscious that's stopping you from getting what you want. So I use affirmations when I'm working with clients to uncover what the belief is underneath. So let's say it's like, I am thin, I am thin and healthy, and they say it, but the inner voice comes up and says, whatever. That's linked to a belief. And if we can uncover the negative belief and change it, then it just accelerates the path to health. So humans are fascinating. and That uh, concept is fascinating. The uh, Rhonda, thanks so much for spending time with me today. I could go on for another hour or two. Yeah, this is, yeah, yeah. We're, humans are complex. And wonderful and magical and tragic, and I love them all. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. And if you're looking for more tools, go to my website at nolimitselling.com. I've got a free mind training course there that's going to teach you some insights from the world of neuro-linguistic programming, and that is the fastest way to get better results. 